Welcome, Diana. This is the CSIS Careers and Development. Uh, my name is Anna Saito. I'm Deputy Director for Outreach for the Project on Youth Leadership and Development. And with me today is Diana Olbaum. She has held many hats in her development career, first and foremost uh, as a former senior professional staff member on the House and Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, and has also worked in Interaction, has worked at USAID in a number of organizations, and also has been in the academic world. Welcome today. We're so delighted to have you. Let me first ask you sort of the most important question regarding your career on the Hill. Um, you had mentioned today that you went back to the Hill to be part of Representative Halberman's team to rewrite the 1961 Foreign Assistance Act. You know, tell me in your view, why is this important? And, you know, what is making this process so difficult today? And, you know, if this legislation as a whole cannot pass it looking forward, you know, what would partial success look like to you? Well, thank you so much, Anna. Glad to be here today. Um, so the reason that it's important to uh, replace the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961 is that that's really a Cold War document that reflects an old way of doing business, and we need to update our laws to conform to um, all the uh, best practices and lessons learned we've had over the past 50, 60 years. And um, I think that um, a lot of good things are already happening at USAID and the NCC, um, but it's important to codify them so that these, these new changes are institutionalized and not just left up to policy uh, decisions that could change uh, from one day or one administration to the next. Um, as far as um, why the process has been so difficult, um, you know, I think there's a lot of things that work, but I, the, un, the, the, the basic fundamental problem is that there's not a very clear understanding in Congress or the public of what development is and why foreign aid is important. Um, you know, there's polling that uh, is uh, shown and, and, and discussed repeatedly, and it's been the same over many, many years where people think we spend a huge proportion of our budget on foreign aid, and they don't know that it does uh, that it does good things and has important and helpful impacts. Um, they tend to think of it as just money given away to foreign corrupt governments, and they don't realize how much it helps people. So um, there's a big education that needs to be done, both of the public and um, and for members of Congress in order to be able to take this issue seriously and, and address it in a more legislative way. Oh, yeah, I wanted to just ask you, in an ideal world, what would, what would success or your partial success look like for you? I know you're away from the Hill now, yeah. but just sort of, you know, sort of really just the way forward, you know. Well, actually, for, for me, success would just be a process that worked, where you could have a piece of legislation like the one that Howard Berman introduced at the end of 2012, and which Coach uh, Connolly reintroduced this year, where you could have hearings and a markup and rational consideration of it and vote on amendments. Um, you know, the final document that comes out isn't going to be perfect, but success would be that you could have a, a reasonable discussion about it and have 
that legislation make its way through both houses of Congress and have the administration and Congress working together on improving it. That's so important. I think the bipartisan aspect is so important these days, but at some of the talks and sort of looking at the way Congress operates today, there there seems to be, on many issues beyond international law, could be trade or things that there is a sort of lack of consensus. Can you talk a little bit about that and your views on sort of where we are today and then sort of looking back to what it was like maybe 10, 20 years ago? Can you give a view on that? So it's really not about um, a lack of consensus because even when the process worked, and today in my discussion I talked about the last time we had a successful foreign aid authorization bill in 1985, there were big issues. There was aid to the contrast. There was um, apartheid in South Africa. There was the Mexico City policy. All these big foreign policy issues existed, but we were able to talk through them, discuss them, had, you know, we argued. But we had a vote, and it was, the vote was taken, you either won or you lost, and you moved on. And that, that's what seems to be missing now, that um, the process is broken down so that we can't get the vote and move on, that everything just stops. And, um, and I think a lot of times um, the discussion is really more about um, political messaging for the public than about serious consideration of the issues. Interesting. So moving on to sort of the issue of congressional earmarks. You know, in your view, how does that actually impact our broader U.S. international development strategy? Well, earmarks have good, good points and bad points. And I've heard some people even suggest that um, the lack of earmarks is what is um, contributing to the downfall of the legislative process, that people only voted, or members of Congress only voted for things when there were earmarks that they could take credit for and that they felt strongly about. Um, and they are Congress's way of asserting its own views and, the, and representing the interests of the American public in our foreign policy. On the other hand, when there are so many of them, and they're so overlapping and so overwhelming, that the administration gets tied up and unable to, you know, to spend the money effectively. That's when they become a problem, and to some extent, that has been the problem with our foreign aid program. I think um, the, you know, the way out of that is to actually have a strategy and have country-based strategies where it's clear what we're trying to achieve, um, what our priorities and focus are, instead of just having a million different things that we're trying to do in every, in every place. And then um, when you have so many of these earmarks, it's impossible for uh, a country's own priorities to be reflected in this because it's all decided from Washington. So moving on to sort of uh, some of the favorite topics of folks in town is the 150 account. Mm -hmm. And you, I'm sure, know how that works and ins and out of that. But let's move to an ideal world. How would decisions about these financial allocations of this, you know, 150 account work, and how would that be made? This is sort of related to my former question, but if we could make it better in an ideal world, what, what kind of a, maybe it's a process, maybe it's a feedback loop, you know, what, what would we do to make it better, stronger, more strategic? <laughs> uh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, one, 
one thing that I would love to see is for the 150 for, for the budget categories to be reflected in the jurisdictions of the authorizing and appropriations committees so that the whole 150 budget is in the jurisdiction of the foreign affairs and foreign relations committees and the state and foreign office subcommittees so that you know the, the budget isn't broken up into so many different places with different committees and different interests so um, that it, it lacks sort of cohesiveness and, uh, and any ability to uh, have a common strategy. Um, but, you know, the problem is um, the budget process is still going to, you know, depend on Congress and very, you know, you're always going to have the, the problem that domestic issues seem to have more weight than international so just sort of moving on to your broad career and sort of looking at back at the different hats that you've held in organizations, can you tell me a little bit about your experience on the Hill and how um, that decision that you made to go to USAID and then to Interaction has sort of changed your view when you went then but went back to the Hill? It's so helpful to, to uh, have the benefit of the experience in different parts of the government inside and out the government. Um, you know, they always say that where you stand depends on where you sit, and if you're going to be making policy decisions about how money ought to be spent, you, you need to have sort of an inside view of how the process works. So, um, uh, even though I started on Capitol Hill, after about 15 years there, I was ready to try something new, and, and that was a fantastic experience for me to work at USA and see how how the process works internally. You know, I then had some, some years uh, in the private sector, both at NGOs and with my own consulting firm. And, you know, that gives you yet another uh, perspective on um, how, it, how it feels and how it works. And I think all of that combines to make someone a better decision maker. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. I mean, as I look at your career, I'm so inspired by all the work that you've done, the public service that you've done. And, let me ask you a question, since I think um, at the time you joined in the 1980s, um, perhaps at that time maybe working on the Hill as a female or mm -hmm. female staffer may have been maybe different from the context of today. And so since this is a careers and development series, can you tell me and our, our audience here a little bit about your experience as a female professional staff member on the Hill? I'm really glad you asked that because it has changed over time. And there were definitely many times um, early in my career when I was the only woman in the room and had trouble being taken seriously because I was a young woman. And I, I, I remember specific incidents, you know, being put in a room with an ambassador who was um, expecting to be meeting with the senator. But anyone who's done a lot of work on Capitol Hill knows that um, usually the staff who do the meetings and, um, and, and uh, make a lot of the policy recommendations. And so, um, you know, ambassadors don't always get to meet with them. And this ambassador just almost about refused to speak to me until I was able to um, provide some uh, background and information that convinced him that I actually did know what I was talking about. People are often put off by the youth of um, people on Capitol Hill, which is true. You have 23 and 24-year-olds making very big decisions and having a lot of power. 
when that person's a woman, it makes it much harder. I think um, it's changed quite a bit over the period um, that I was on Capitol Hill, and I think the changes actually have happened there faster than they have in many other places, such as the administration and particularly the academic world, because the um, the average tenure of a chemical staffer is about three years. It puts me way in the <laughs> you know uh, limits of um, outside the limits of, 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 of normality there. But as a result, you know societal changes are reflected quite quickly in chemical. And it is definitely a meritocracy where people who do well um, get promoted quickly and succeed. Um, in more bureaucratic organizations where people stay for their entire career, it takes a whole generation for young women to make their way up through the system. And if people have tenure and they don't leave, it just takes a longer time for things to work up. Whereas, um, you know, on Capitol Hill, you have a whole, a whole new uh, set of faces within a couple of years. That's actually fascinating. Um, I never sort of, until you sort of talked about the average tenure and how it starts moving quickly, that's fascinating to hear that you think that uh, the career of a female in the hell is actually, that has moved the needle over the last, and evolved so much over the last 10, 20 years. So moving on to sort of, sort of maybe some of your more creative side, rumor has it that you took a sabbatical uh -huh. to perhaps to Italy, that I guess, <laughs> to explore your creative size overseas. You know, I think oftentimes, you know, people don't really think about sabbaticals in their career, but can you talk a little bit about what you did during that time, how you still manage your, you know, your professional career and interests, but also with your personal passions? We're really curious about that because here in Washington, we're so focused here on the next step and the next bureau, and I want to move up and be at the next GS or the political, you know, thing and go lobby. I just feel like it's such a um, really vicious game, but it looks like you've taken a break to sort of, you know, maybe perhaps re-prioritize re some of your passion. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and how you need to work. I think you're absolutely right that Washington is very preoccupied with career matters, and everybody wants to improve their resume and don't always think about doing something that they like doing. And for me, the priority has always been to do something that I enjoy doing where I feel like I'm making a difference. And I don't really care so much about what it looks like on my resume. But at this particular point in time, this was at the end of 2006, my husband actually had just retired from the federal government and my boss at the time, Senator Sarbanes, was retiring. And so it was a kind of a unique moment for me, where I didn't have a job, um, we didn't have any family responsibilities to either, you know, children or parents, and we decided, you know, let's let's do something really fun. So we sold our house, we put all our stuff in storage, and we just picked up and went. And we didn't have any particular agenda. I mean, to be honest, we thought we were going to just stay in Italy, and so we went through the whole process of getting residency visas for Italy. And, which is a place that we didn't have any family connections to. We just, you know, had been there on a vacation once and thought it was really fun. Um, so we went and basically stayed in hotels um, at first. Um, you know, we would pick a city and stay there, and when we had enough there, we would think of what, where's the next place you want to go and go to the next place. And we carried one suitcase each and just um, we ended up spending about a month traveling around Sicily, about a month in 
more months traveling around the rest of Italy. We absolutely loved every minute of it, um, but realized that um, the amount of money that we had coming in from my husband's retirement wasn't enough to um, to uh, keep us doing that for indefinitely. So we decided to look for a place that was less expensive and we went to Mexico. And we spent about six months in Mexico and had a fabulous time there. Uh, and then after that, we traveled around the U.S. for a while, um, just in our little Mini Cooper. And we would just rent a place for three months and stay there and see what we thought of it. And um, that's how I was in Florida when, uh, when the call came. <laughs> so it, it, you know, it actually turned out to be a lot less expensive to live traveling than it was to own a house in Washington, D.C. Just first of all, because the it's so expensive living here, but also when you have to carry everything you own with you, you don't buy stuff. And when you're not buying stuff, you save a lot of money. Oh, that's so fascinating. How did you feel? Tell me about that moment about when you were in Florida and you mm -hmm. got that call back. I mean, you you know, we're in this mode of exploring your favorite cities with your husband, exploring the United States, but there, obviously you're a very driven woman, mm -hmm. professional person, so, you know, they must have had a really good story to bring you back. But So tell me about that shift, because uh -huh. you took a break, but yep. then you felt, perhaps this is timing and you know, sort of what you alluded to earlier about that window of opportunity. But tell me a little bit about your thought process at that point when you were probably having a cocktail in Florida. <laughs> well, the truth was that we were already thinking about coming back to D.C. We, um, we missed our friends. We missed our life. I missed having an impact on the world. I, we were writing screenplays as we were traveling around, so I wasn't, you know, completely without things to do. And I loved doing that. But, um, but I was ready to, you know, to think about my career again. And um, I got a call from somebody who was, um, who wanted some help in um, uh, impacting a process that they thought was about to start in Washington of Warren A before. And when I called the House Foreign Affairs Committee to say, is this true? Are you really going to do a reform effort? Um, there were still people I knew there. They were like, yes, can you come help us with it? So um, it, was just, right it just time. kind of worked out at the right time. And, to be honest, um, all my entire career has never been because I really had a, a clear idea of what I wanted to do and ran after it. Most of the time it was because uh, despite some decision I had made and just being open to a possibility that, um, that made itself well, this has been so fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I think our audience here will certainly appreciate hearing your perspective on the Hill and doing many different things here in your career in Washington. So today with me was Diana Olbunk, who has had a long career as a professional staff member, both on the House Committee of Foreign Affairs and Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Diana, thank you again for joining us at CSIS. Thank you so much, Diana.